Hi, I'm Antonia, and I'm a midwife. Hi, I'm Micah, and I'm a midwife. Hi, I'm Jane, I'm a midwife. Hi, I'm Savannah, a student midwife. Hi, I'm Lucy, and I'm a midwifery support worker. Hello, my name's Golbano, and I'm a Hello, I'm Gemma Murphy and you're very welcome to the final episode of the RCM's 2021 podcast series. 2021, what a year it's been for midwives and maternity support workers right across the UK. The pandemic has really laid bare some long-standing issues faced by maternity services, understaffing being one of those. It's rarely been out of the news. We know our members feel it every day on their shifts and the RCM has been shouting as loudly as it can, highlighting staffing issues at every opportunity with government, with NHS employers and in the media. The RCM has offered solutions to improve the recruitment and retention issues that we are facing. We know services have been under more pressure than ever before, but despite this, midwives and maternity support workers have shown unbelievable resilience and the work that they've done to keep services running safely and supporting women and their families has been incredible. And it has not gone unnoticed. There has been difficult days for many RCM members, but it's not been all doom and gloom. There is inspiring work and unbelievably hard work happening out there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year across maternity services in England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. And for the past 12 months, I've had the pleasure of hearing firsthand what's happening on the ground out there. I've spoken to RCM members who have triumphed in the face of adversity. They've shared their professional journeys, their personal stories, highs and lows, and imparted some great advice for others. So for this final episode of 2021, we have chosen a select of highlights from across the series for you to enjoy. Now in January at the beginning of 2021, which seems like such a long time ago now, so much has happened this year, the RCM published a new position statement on supporting women with severe and multiple disadvantage during pregnancy. The position statement, like all RCM position statements, are available on the website at rcm.org.uk and it contains guidance and support for midwives working in this particular part of the profession. As part of this, I wanted to gain more insight into the experiences of specialist midwives, particularly safeguarding midwives. So I spoke to Vlora Purchase, a specialist midwife, a safeguarding midwife from Greenwich and Lewisham NHS Trust. How more prevalent has supporting women with severe and multiple disadvantage come over the years, but really, I guess, over the last year? But I imagine that it's been a lot busier for you in more recent years. Absolutely. Yes, you're right. I mean, um, when we started, obviously, uh, there's always been women who there have been families who require extra help during pregnancy. And I remember as a student, when I first qualified, there was always women and families who needed us, but we didn't really have anything, you know, any sort of uh, team of midwives or health visitors that we could re- refer. And then in 2006, a Greenwich Council came up with the idea that that Greenwich is a quite disadvantaged area and they need, we needed someone to lead a, a project where to support these women. So um, in 2006, we, we started this team of midwives and we put together um, uh, supporting services, a team of, of, of people who can who support these um, families. 
and then obviously it's been a challenge it's been a challenge and it's it's like learning to walk you know yes we are midwives and we we support women day in day out however when you have mums obviously pregnancy is vulnerable time for all mothers out there but when you have other concerning issues or other sort of dis, uh, disadvantages then it makes you even more vulnerable and yes it's it's um it's been a challenge but um we are a team and uh, we we are managing and uh, especially this in during pandemic of course the vulnerability on women is is much much higher and we see more and more women who are needing our help who are needing our input and um it's it's hard but uh we are uh, doing our best to support them well you've really navigated the challenges really well because the team is 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 still going all these years later but how easy or i mean or how difficult at least is it to support women who need more specialist care and more time with midwives when there simply aren't always enough midwives i always say we are so lucky that we are part of this team we're so lucky in our trust that we've got teams like best beginnings because we are dedicated our role is to support these mums and the main the main challenge is time for women and that's what we have in best beginnings we have time for women so part of our role is to give women as much time as possible so we there are being that we are able to listen to them listen to their worries listen to their the concerns and identify challenges and escalate and we have time to refer and to ask other professionals for their help and their support so um at the end of the day we are midwives we know I'm not a mental health worker I'm not a social worker I've got my own role but the I, the part of my role is to collaborate and work with other professionals and that we have time for that and I do feel sorry for other midwives who haven't got the time and they haven't got an opportunity to to provide that service and it's a it's a challenge I know I I I've spoken to so many midwives over years regarding this and their main main concern is I don't have time we don't have time to support mums and you know but we are lucky in best beginnings that we do have time obviously you're a professional you're a professional midwife you have years and years of experience in midwifery but the pressures and the t- challenges and and what you hear and how you have to cope day to day is that difficult for you on a personal level you know not to bring your work home with you or to separate your day from your your downtime how do you cope God, yes, that's a that's a good question. Um, it is a challenge, you know, because we are mothers ourselves, we're women ourselves, you know. And when you see women going through really difficult time, or they've experienced some some really terrible uh, times, and it's so hard that it tries to switch off and um, separate that from from taking taking that that burden, that information with us home. But we are lucky in view that we are a big, big team. It's it's about ten of us in this team, Brilliant. and we are very close as a team. And we 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 talk to each other a lot, and we we debrief each other. In addition, we also have psychology input. Recently, we've been offered a psychology input from our perinatal mental health team in Greenwich and Bexley, and we have um we we used to have a once a month pre COVID. <laughs> but um since we have less than that but still that's quite um it's a it's a protected time for us where we can discuss any difficult case anything that's affecting us personally that we can debrief we can be counseled and um they 
give us um, sort of a, a tips about how we manage this and how we separate uh, work and um, life. RCM's Caring For You campaign was originally launched in 2016 as an initiative that was aimed to improve the health and well-being of midwives and maternity support workers. Now, given COVID-19 and all the pressure that the pandemic has brought, it's never, ever been more important. Members are feeling more stretched than ever before. Staffing shortages, heavier workloads and longer shifts mean stress and burnout are unfortunately all too common amongst RCM members. Now, back in February, I caught up with Jill Adji, RCM's regional head for the north of England, who leads on the RCM's Caring For You campaign work. But If somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, I'd like to be a health and safety rep for the RCM, what kind of support and training is in place from the RCM? They first of all, uh, they've got to sort of express that interest with their local branch. And if they haven't got a branch, they can contact us and we'll put them in touch with one of our regional officers, national officers or one of our organisers to talk them through what that might look like and how we'd go about, you know, getting them elected in their workplace. But they need to be elected and they need to be accredited. They, It is a recognised role. It's an accredited role. And under the law, they will get time off to undertake their duties as a health and safety rep, which is really important. And it's really important then that for us, that they are an active member of that branch. So they, you know, they work as a team with stewards or learning reps or MSW advocates and other branch officials around the caring for you agenda, but actually not just the caring for you agenda, but the, the health and safety agenda for maternity services. And not only in maternity service, but we would expect them to go to the Trust's Health and Safety Committee meetings. They would be reporting back around what the issues that we were having in maternity services. And I think the other thing and the great thing about all of our roles as far as our, our reps are concerned is it actually broadens your outlook as about what else is happening in the trust. We, of course, give our reps training. That was normally face-to-face training, but of course, at the moment, we are delivering all of our workplace reps training on a virtual platform. So we would have an introductory health and safety reps course, and there are a number of those courses that run throughout the year. So if you are an accredited health and safety rep, we would place you on the next available course, and hopefully that would be one that fitted in with your own personal work-life balance, of course. But the other thing that we've introduced this year is a quarterly health and safety reps catch-up. So in last year, we were talking about risk assessments. We've just recently done a health and safety virtual catch-up with our, our reps, and they talked a lot about vaccinations. So we will be bringing our reps up to date with any change in evidence, anything that they need to take back to the workplace, that, and will help them undertake their role for RCM members in their branch. So, yeah, the other thing is, Gemma, just, you know, they're not sort of cast adrift. So I mentioned regional officers, national officers and organisers. They would be supporting them to do their role. So and, and every workplace has got um, officers and organisers who uh, work for the RCM that will support those reps. 
Fantastic. And it's definitely worth mentioning, Jill, we have a brand new Caring For You hub on the website. Yes, we do. Yeah. So that's just, uh, that was launched. Can't remember whether it was last week or the week before now. But yeah, that's launched. It's up there. So we brought it up to date. We've hopefully made it a little bit easier to navigate. And one of the things that we have added to the hub is some really, really good links. So Lydia, who works in your team, and I have gone through lots of links that are out there to support our members' uh, health and well-being. And there's also a link there to our benevolent fund as well, if, if our members are feeling financially challenged at the moment. I just want to say again, a huge thank you to all of our activists, our reps our, and our members that are out there looking after each other. And I think, you know, I think what you said, Gemma, is that we've seen lots of really great evidence and good examples of what our local branches are doing to support our members, which, you know, is really fantastic. And it's a huge thank you to them. And it's a huge achievement to them because you know they're often packing those goodie bags in their own time and uh, you know things like that which I, I don't I don't think that maybe we say thank you enough to them because they they do a fantastic job out there for us and we definitely couldn't represent our members and support our members as well as we do do without them. It's fair to say that COVID-19 and the impact the pandemic was and continues to have on maternity services was naturally mentioned across this 2021 podcast series. It was hard to escape it and it needed to be discussed as it was affecting midwives and MSWs in their day-to-day jobs. Now, back in March for our COVID one year on episode, I spoke with Sarah Neal, a midwife from Rotherham NHS Foundation Trust, who quite candidly shared her and her colleagues' experiences of supporting women during some of the toughest restrictions. But first, I asked RCM's Chief Executive and General Secretary Jill Walton for her reflections on how our Race Matters programme had been affected by COVID. Yes, and I I think that that was such an important thing to do because we were always, we'd started that piece of work anyway. You know, you've heard me say many times, Gemma, you know, I'm not proud of us not doing maybe as much as we could have done around race and equality and discrimination in the workplace, but also caring for women. And I think the focus of COVID, where we then realised that that women from BAME backgrounds were more likely to be ill and die, we absolutely thought, come on, we're going to have to launch Race Matters now um, and start really preparing our staff, our activists and and really tackle this head on. And so we did. We we launched Race Matters, which is absolutely now a golden thread through everything we do. So it isn't a campaign. And I think let's be honest about that. It's not a campaign. It really is something we have to do together with with everybody so that 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 discrimination and inequality disappears. You know, and I, I, and that I'm really determined we do that as the Royal College. And, and I think it's, you know, we're doing lots and lots of work in it. And I think the awareness of the issues and, and the systemic racism in, in the NHS, not just in maternity services and in our culture is becoming, we're all becoming much more aware of. So race matters was a, was, was the right thing to do. I wish we'd done it earlier, but COVID definitely gave us a kick to do it now. Sarah Neal from Rotherham NHS Foundation Trust. How are you doing, Sarah? 
I'm good, Gemma. Thank you for inviting me. It's really nice to be here talking to you. I'm so delighted to have you on the podcast. How have things been at Rotherham for the past year? Um, I would say difficult is one of the words that we would describe it. The, the overpowering thing really has been the uncertainty over the year. Initially, when we first started hearing about COVID and that we had to make all the changes to make sure that we were keeping our women and families safe, the main thing was the overpowering uncertainty of how quickly things were changing. When women were asking us for advice at certain points, we didn't know. And that was really difficult for us. We like to be able to give clear advice. And our leaders were writing and rewriting policies literally several times within a week. So it was really tricky to keep up with those times. And I think possibly a year on, we're still in a position of being quite uncertain about what's happening where we're going and where we will be in maybe another year. So it's difficult in that point. I can only imagine. How long have you worked as a midwife now, Sarah? Oh, this is my 18th year of being a midwife. Wow. 18 yeah. years of service to women, their babies and their families. That's a serious That's achievement. Um, in, in, yeah. all, in all your 18 years, has the pressure like the past year been different? Absolutely. Never experienced anything like it. Um, yeah, completely new. Not, not just the uncertainty of not being able to give clear advice, but the anxiety, not just, um, the anxiety that women and families are feeling and how we can support them with that, but also the anxiety that the staff have been feeling. Everybody's worried about their own families and their own well-being. And like I say, not knowing what the answers are and what the future is going to look like has been really difficult. Yeah, in the early days of, of the pandemic, I guess a year ago, just on, over a year ago now, little was known about the virus, how fast it was spreading, what was needed to protect one another from contracting it. And I guess when someone presents at your maternity unit in labour, your first a natural instinct as a midwife is to jump in and, and support that woman, even if it's an unplanned birth or there's an emergency happening. And that must have been incredibly difficult just in terms of, of PPE and, and the anxiety, like you said, that, that, that you were faced with it every day. Mm, absolutely. I think one of the biggest things that's been tricky for myself has been that we are a very tactile profession touch and being close to people not only our women and families but also each other is paramount actually to the care that we give and so having to be distant and back off and have all these barriers between us has been difficult to navigate and how to work around that and how to be different without making women feel that we're not there for them in the same way and um, people have been wearing nice sparkly eye shadow and making sure their eyes are wide and sparkly and really going above and beyond to make sure that people still feel that we're there and connected because we feel those barriers as well. There's the amount of times that I've wanted to throw my arms around a postnatal woman who was sobbing in the middle of the night or a member of staff who experienced a traumatic experience and normally we would hug each other up and we've not been allowed to and that's been quite painful at times it's really hard it, it's so unimaginably hard really isn't it and, and then like you said 
to, to smile, but using your eyes. And I love that idea of putting, I hate eyeshadow, but now that you've said that, if I was in masked PPE all day and all people could see and the women I cared for was my eyes, I really love that idea of making your eyes sparkly and dressing them up. They do say the eyes are the window to the soul. And I guess women do look into, into midwives' eyes, you know, looking for support and, and answers sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And and as midwives, we do a lot of non-verbal communication as well. Again, not just with our women, but with each other. So sometimes we can talk to each other and know what's going on in a room without saying a word. And so now we're really having to do that with our eyes and we're all very conscious of that. So um, there's a lot of effort that's gone into replacing that non-verbal communication. Maternity support workers and maternity care assistants are vital members of the maternity team, so much so that we made a whole podcast about the amazing work that they do. Of course, they provide support not only to women, but to midwives and the wider maternity team. This year, the winner of the Maternity Support Worker of the Year Award was Candice Noonan, who is a bereavement support worker. So there are so many varying roles. We really thought it was important to dive into the world of the MSW and find out exactly what they do and what drives them to do it. And who better to speak to than a dedicated mum of 10, Sally Morgan, a maternity support worker from Tameside Hospital. You've been a maternity support worker for a long time. Yeah, about... Uh, about ten and a half years now, I think. So yeah, so quite a while. I've always worked at Tameside as well. And what what made you want to get involved and become a maternity support worker? I think <laughs> I'm a mum of ten children. So Yay! Um, oh my yeah, goodness, incredible! Absolutely crazy. And <laughs> um, I think um, I mean I didn't have my children um, at Tameside. I, I lived down south then. And I think going through each pregnancy, I always had a different midwife. And a couple of my pregnancies were complex. So I found myself every single appointment having to tell them all about my problems and my issues. And I don't know, I think I sort of wanted to come into, I wanted to be a midwife, wanted to come into midwifery to give that continuity of care and to see the ladies, you know, from sort of booking right through to post-delivery. And I applied at uni, didn't get into uni to start with. So my plan B was getting an MSW role. And here I am 10 and a half years later still doing it. I think I just love it. I never wanted to deliver babies. I always wanted to do community midwifery and give that continuity of care. And I'm more or less doing that now, really. You're absolutely doing that. I'm still in shock that you're a mother to 10. (laughs) That is absolutely incredible. Can I ask you a little bit more, girls, boys? Uh, I've got eight boys and two girls. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had a girl, four boys, then a girl, and then I actually had quadruplets, four boys. But uh, unfortunately, one of them was stillborn. So I've got nine children living on one, but I still still say I'm a mum of ten because I am. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like you said, isn't it interesting because you had so much experience of using maternity services and that's what got you interested in providing continuity and improving things because you saw it from the other side? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, And I do get quite, not, I can't really use the word frustrated, but I get, if I can't provide that continuity with my ladies, you know, I do get a bit upset and a bit like oh you know I'm sorry I can't see you today so but you know I always try and follow it up if I can 
Yeah, uh, it's really important to me, I think, for them to get to know me. I tend to meet them round about 20 weeks and then support them. I can support them in, um, in the appointments or just go home to the house and support them. And then I see them because I do postnatal visits as well. So the um, PKU weigh-in, things like that. I tend to support them then because we keep them on for 28 days. So I still see them after they've had the baby. Obviously, the midwife that they're under sees them, but I support them as well. So going back to the parent ed, obviously bathing as well. When I first started doing the role, I used to get the doll in the bath. But then I soon quickly realised that when you've got water and a baby, it's completely different. So now I go home after the baby's at home and we do a bath demo with the real baby. Well, they they bath them and I sort of <laughs> guide them <laughs> with the real baby. And um, I get lovely feedback and it's nice to get the feedback, that, you know. Is that re- the most rewarding experience, you know, seeing the woman from being pregnant through the journey and that month afterwards, her becoming a mother and growing into that role as a parent? Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, when, you know, unfortunately, some of the ladies, I've got social services involved, and I sort of get involved. And I mean, I'm not saying I make that difference for them keep baby, you know, with the parent sessions I am doing with them, it goes a long way towards that. And it's very, very rewarding, like you say, you know, when this mum and baby do get to stay together, and you see them thrive over the next four weeks so yeah it's really rewarding that I think that's why I keep coming (laughs) in May I produced the safety and quality in maternity services podcast and safety and supporting midwives to deliver safe care is one of the RCM's top priorities This year, they published the new Solutions series, which was developed to support midwifery leaders and midwives to implement recommendations that were laid out in the Ockingdon Review. That was the interim Ockingdon Review that was published earlier this year. Now, they were actions that were to be implemented immediately and the RCM provided guidance and support for our members on how that could be achieved as we await the full Ockingdon Review of maternity services, particularly Shrewsbury and Telford, which is due to be published in March 2022. But for this safety and quality in maternity services episode, I spoke to Suzanne Cunningham, who's a director for midwifery at the University Hospital in Southampton. And she shared her decades worth of experience and some real practical advice on practices that can improve safety. Let's talk a little bit about you, Suzanne, and your career. So you're obviously director for midwifery at Southampton. Mm. How long have you been here? Tell me more about your career. I qualified as a midwife in 1986. Um, and I worked, I worked in a, a number of different services as a midwife. I spent some time at the university. I went to the university and did a bit more research and education. And, and then I came to Southampton about 20 years ago. No, yeah, yeah, 20 years ago yeah. in 2000 when the first consultant midwife posts came up and, and I was lucky enough to, to get, get one of the consultant posts at Southampton. Um, there was two of us. So I was a very happy consultant midwife for 17 years. It's a great job. It's a great role. And I was really quite happy until the director of midwifery in Southampton left and there wasn't, we, we hadn't got a succession plan and we weren't able to recruit nationally. So um, I got asked to, to, to take it, you know, just to, just to do it for six months. Yeah. 
So you stepped up and you're still you're still here all those years later. I did, yeah, <laughs> yes. I think I think uh, yeah. In the end, I thought right, okay, I can probably give this the five years that they're asking me to do. So yes, that's that's uh, that's that's what I've um, that's why I, I took it on. Well, certainly talking to you, it seems like you have a love affair with Southampton. But um, yeah. podcast, of course, is all about safety and quality. And I wanted yeah. to, to talk to you. And and you said that you spoke to your team before we started recording today. Mm. Some practices that you have in place that improve safety for women and their families. Yes. Well, we, I asked them what sort of things do you think we've we've done to improve safety, and they, they came up with some sort of very, you know we came up with some sort of big picture stuff. But I think you know. F- for most midwives, they want to know what have you done. What's what things have you done that have had a big impact? And one of the things that we do that really works well here is that we have an emergency team. So on labour ward, there's a team. So when the buzzer goes and we know there's an emergency, not everybody rushes there. But we we have we have a team that are dedicated. And as the time's gone on of us doing that, we've put added different roles. So there's everybody has a role. So you know when you go in there, you're the scribe. And you're going to be looking after the partner and keeping an eye on the baby. If you go in there, you know that you're the person that's going to be, you know, leading that. So, so it's all sort of allocated before they go. So it saves all that bit of confusion that sometimes happens when an emergency happens. And it's, and it's been really well evaluated. The team feel confident that they know what they're going, you know, what's going to be expected of them when they go into a, an emergency situation. I really like like the sound of that approach because because you're right. I guess time is of the essence in emergency situations. Yes. So if everybody yeah. knows what they're doing before that bell or you know goes, it really does improve the care that women are receiving. Yeah, I think it links in with one of the other things that we've done. It's that sort of it's that helicopter view, and one of the other things that we've implemented is is we have uh, what we call an operational coordinator now. And that's somebody who is has got the helicopter view of the service. Prior to that, we used to leave the manager's bleep, as it used to be called, with the person on labour wards. The person, quite frankly, who's got the most stress in, in the organisation and all the calls would come through there. And it was a really difficult, when everybody needed staff, they would go to there. And it's been such a revelation to have somebody who's working at you know a, a senior level with an absolute helicopter view of the service able to move staff around if we need to in terms of in in when we're in escalation able to take messages in from staff but also able to look at the off duty and things that are going on for the next day and the day after that so that you're not sort of it's you know it's it's an a, actual sort of continuous process that we're ensuring that the staff staffing the organization to what we should be doing and to the changes that are happening to the number of women that are coming through the service so that's been another really good intervention that we've, we've done now shortly after jill walton became the general secretary and chief executive of the royal college of midwives back in late 2017 she began leading a piece of work known as our race matters work it began in 2018 where we reached out to our black asian and minority ethnic members to hear their experiences and ask their opinions about how they felt the rcm was doing and what more it could do to support midwives and maternity support workers particularly to tackle racism in the workplace First, we go to Lolo Onata, who openly shared her experiences of being a black midwife with me. 
Okay, so Lola and Atto, how long have you been a midwife? So I have been a midwife for uh, 18 years now. I started my training in 2000 and I came in via direct entry and qualified in 2003. So it's now 18 years. And can I say that's gone very quickly? I can't, I can't believe it really. It sounds very weird to be saying I've been qualified for 18 years. <laughs> yeah, it's a hell of a commitment really, isn't it? 18 years caring for women and their babies. And have you always, have you always done the same role as a midwife or have you, have you moved about within maternity services? So I've moved about within midwifery. So when I qualified, I was what you would call a rotational midwife. So I went everywhere. I think I started probably on delivery suite. And then from there, I went to the antenatal ward and the postnatal ward. And then from there, I started working in the birth center. So the the hospital that I was working at had a birth center. And I stayed on that birth center for quite a while. And then moved back into London because I trained outside of London. I moved from London to train, stayed at the hospital that I qualified in because I really liked it and then moved back into London. So I sort of worked in all areas of midwifery. Yeah, of course. Coming back to London, you know, as a black midwife, it's a much more diverse workforce, I'd imagine, in London. Yes, it is. And actually, the funny thing is about it is where I trained, it's probably not as diverse as London. And I would say the the sort of the the ethnic uh I hate saying the word minority I know people say ethnic minority but I always think like you know we're not a minority but I guess the biggest non-white population that was there were from South Asia and obviously there were black people there as well but when you move back into London you see the difference straight away yeah and I guess the diversity in the workplace in London reflects the, the the diversity in the in the women that you're caring for as well Yeah, absolutely. It really does. Yeah. Where I trained, I would probably say that what I noticed uh, straight away were there weren't as many black and brown midwives as there would have been, you know, in London. And when I moved back to London, that was definitely confirmed. There were so many more black and brown faces in midwifery um, than there were where I trained. Over the 18 years, because 18 years is such a long time. I really admire you for doing that. (laughs) Have you ever experienced racism in the workplace from colleagues? Um, Yes, I have. I think everybody who's in my shoes will probably say that at some point they've experienced what I would call like microaggressions. So things like when you go in with a white colleague, the white colleague is always assumed to be the person who's more knowledgeable or more senior, those sort of things. And even as a midwife, when you're working with a student, having women and families automatically direct things towards the white person because maybe they feel the white person is the one that's in charge. Specifically, I remember two incidents that stick out. One incident, uh, we laughed at it at the time, but actually it's not really funny, but we had a woman who had come in. Ironically, she was Kenyan and she was black and she had specifically asked not to be looked after by a black midwife. So those of us who were black and brown thought it was really funny. I think as in, not funny as in what she said, but ironic that she would say that and she was black herself. Her excuse was, or her explanation was the fact that she had recently been back home to Kenya and had had some antenatal checks while she was there and everybody that had had looked after all the black midwives were really awful to her. I can't even remember how it was dealt with. I just remember the statement. I remember thinking, gosh, that's coming from a black woman, you know. And I think the thing that I have always talked about is the fact that 
for us, black and brown people, we also may have had a very whitewashed education. Even those of us who maybe have been educated in our countries of origin. So I'm originally Nigerian, but I think I still would say that I had a fairly whitewashed education. And it is that sort of, um, it is that thing where it's implanted in your mind, even though you don't know it, that something that somebody who is white is doing is better than, than, than your own. So thinking about it years later, I, I, I just, you know, I'm still in shock that she said it, but I can almost see the way her mind was working. And then the second incident that happened was from a member of staff who had, she'd made a comment about the fact that I think uh, what had happened, we were on a night shift and a woman had come up and asked for some breastfeeding um, support. And she had spoken to the healthcare assistants who happened on that shift to be white. And all the midwives on the shift that night happened to be black. And they also happened to be of African origin. So the the healthcare assistant had said to the woman, oh, go back to your bedside and somebody will, will be with you. But as the woman walked off, she made a derogatory remark and the healthcare assistants all laughed. So the woman, when her husband came in the morning, had reported this to the husband and the husband had complained. And when the healthcare assistant was confronted by the manager, she said, it wasn't her, it was the African midwives in the staff room who were talking in their language. And it just made me laugh so much because I think the, the the level of ignorance behind that statement, for starters, you know, first of all, I come from Nigeria where we speak 250 different languages. I may not understand the person in the next village to me who's speaking in a different language. So for me to have a common language with African people that I speak just seems quite absurd. But also, I think it was the boldness of the statement, the fact that she felt she could say that and there wouldn't be any repercussions But again, I think that's also white privilege, you know, to know that she can say that and not expect there to be anything that would come back off that or to expect to be cautioned or disciplined. You know, you just wouldn't say it. And if you want to hear more about the RCM's Race Matters work, well, you can on our podcast hub. We have a full Race Matters podcast where I had the privilege of chatting to RCM members who bravely shared their personal stories of how racism has impacted their midwifery careers. They told me about the challenges they faced and how they positively tackled and overcame racist behaviour in the workplace. Some of these midwives experience racism, sadly, from their own colleagues, as well as pregnant women. Okay, so we're going north of the border for this interview with Marie Buckley-Gray. Marie, thanks so much for taking the time out to come on our podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. It's um, We've got a lovely um, Scottish um, summer just now, so I've been enjoying that. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Busy as ever. I mean, not as busy as you, though, because it's fair to say you're a mom of three children and you're juggling your studies and clinical placements with that. And that's no that's no mean feat, really, is it? It's it's um it's interesting times I think for my family it's exciting times. <laughs> what what age are your children, Marie? Um, twelve, ten, and coming on towards eight. Okay, wow. So, what inspired you to come back and 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 become a midwife to train as a midwife? Um, I I think that I've always had an inkling towards midwifery from a very very early age. And, you know, when I was very little, everybody used to call me my mother's nurse, my little my little nurse, I got called. And I remember going to appointments um, at the hospital and looking up at the midwifery and the nursing staff and um, thinking, 
how clever they were, um, how kind they were. And walking out and looking at the the nurses' accommodation and thinking, wow, the you know the camaraderie they've got, and you know how they improve people's lives. Unfortunately, tragedy hit the family, and I found myself over that time at um, Dartmouth Royal Naval College, and then I ended up in a completely different career um, after that. And then I had my first child um, years and years later at 28, and it it started to become something I needed to do. I really okay. needed to do. Yeah. So do you think that the experience of, 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 you know, having a baby, being pregnant and the care that you received from midwives was part of that kind of inspiration? Yes. Yes, it really was. I saw some really lovely midwives. I had some care that could have been better. <laughs> um, I think it's just life really, isn't it? And it it became obvious to me that I wanted to support women. I really wanted to support women. And when I looked back, even when I was doing the other career in in my travels, you know, I found myself staying with midwives. I found myself on kind of mini courses to do with, you know, learning skills that supported women, even though it was completely different from the career I had. And so when I look back, I've this has been brewing a long time. Yeah. Yeah. It almost sounds that like something internally was steering you towards a, a life of, of midwifery. Yes. Yes. And when I had my eldest, um, with my second, I ended up by that point, um, I became a therapist. So I supported women in that way. And I qualified to teach fertility as well. Um, these were all things that I could do whilst having my young family and essentially working around my husband's career because I, I didn't have family support around me. So that's what I had to do. Yeah, and, and that's difficult, isn't it? There are many women that are listening and, and will appreciate what you're saying, being maybe not in the same area or location or in a different country, having a baby and, and having to really, you know, fit their career and their plans around their children and being a mother. And that can be, I guess, a lonely place when you don't have so much family support or there's distance between you and your family. It, it was... Um... Yeah, I think it was. It would have been very, very difficult. I wouldn't say impossible, but very difficult to have gone back to uni at that point. And so I chose to do short courses and build therapy business. And I found myself going to to support women at many births as just a layperson and working alongside midwives. So that's what I did for 10 years. <laughs> yeah, and I guess all of that experience and all those courses and things that you did um, along the way really, really helped you. And I, I imagine that it's helping you now as you're training to become a, a professional midwife. It is. And I am actually, it feels like, so during that time, I was very careful to make sure that I was never stepping into what could be perceived as midwifery. I was very, very careful. And so when one of my friends who is, who's now retired, but has been a midwife for a very long time, she sent me a fetoscope. It felt so momentous. And when I went out, particularly placement, particularly the one I'm at now, it feels like I've come home and I'm finally kind of, yeah, it's wonderful. It's really wonderful. Well, you sound so positive about the whole experience so far. What stage are you at in your studies now? I'm in first year. I'm towards the end of my first year. I've got five more weeks of placement and then I will be in second year. Wow. Congratulations <laughs> on making it this far. 
In September, long-awaited flexible working rules were introduced in the NHS to allow NHS employees in England and Wales to request flexible working from their very first day of employment. The RCM, to support those who may wish to take advantage of this opportunity, published guidance alongside Maternity Action for midwives and MSWs. And you can read the guidance that can support you to apply for flexible working on the RCM's website, rcm.org.uk. Now, the new rules apply to all NHS staff in England and Wales, as I mentioned. And Alice Sorby, the RCM's Employment Relations Advisor and the lead on these changes around flexible working, join me back in October for our current Current Realities Facing Maternity Services podcast to discuss more about the flexible working arrangements that could work for you. Let's talk about other parts of, of your role and what you're doing, because you are heavily involved in, in, in improving terms and conditions for our members. Yeah, so one of the biggest things that I've been working on in terms of terms and conditions recently has been flexible working. And there are some new provisions coming in for into the Agenda for Change handbook from the 13th of September, new flexible working provisions, which are part of come from an ambition from NHS England's people plan to make flexibility a reality for all NHS staff. And the new provisions give a day one right to request flexible working and there's the ability to make an unlimited number of requests in a year but it also builds in a process so that there really has to be a proper exploration into a flexible working request so it's kind of moving away from that just no it's too hard to do deny the request sort of thing but really to think about the benefits of it for the service for staff's health and well-being and to real to kind of just look at it a bit differently you know maybe a request cannot be granted exactly as it's been put in but let's explore what we can do to to accommodate some sort of flexible working for staff so I think that will be good but big caveat we need to make sure that works for frontline staff like midwives and maternity support workers and we are as the RCM updating our flexible working guidance and we'll be doing so we'll be doing lots of work when those provisions come in to really try and make it a reality for members but also to support line managers as well who will be dealing with those requests coming in to kind of think about think about how we can do it positively and so that it works for everyone. It's really important, isn't it? And it's particularly important for like people's work-life balance. Some people will be juggling caring, you know, and, and children and stuff like that. And they'll need to, you know, they'll probably want this kind of idea of flexible working. And actually, mentally and physically, it probably helps in, in kind of, you know, weaning out such burnout all the time as well. Definitely. I mean, we've got a shortage of midwives we know that midwives are leaving if we can retain at least some of those midwives by helping them to work in a way that better supports their health and well-being then then that's win-win isn't it because we're not going to be able to close the shortage of midwives if we can't retain midwives as well as recruiting new midwives and I've spoken to members, you know, who say they prefer working on agency or bank because it's more flexible and it works for them and their families. So actually, in the long run, it could save the NHS quite a bit of money. Definitely. And I think we really need to, to show employers and managers those benefits and see, you know, it isn't it isn't always easy managing rosters and, and, and everything. But but to think about the kind of bigger picture about how it can really help to retain. And as you say, 
hopefully reduce a bit of expensive bank spend as well. I'm really happy to be joined by Suzanne Tyler, the Executive Director for Services to Members at the RCM. How are you, Suzanne? I'm good, Gemma, and thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm one of your number one fans, so I feel like it's a great honour to be on the podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted to have you here. I'm sorry it's taken so long to get you on, but now you're here. Tell us more about what the Services for Members team are doing at the moment. Well, I I always feel like it's, I don't want to be saying how hard it's been. However hard it's been for us, it's not been anywhere near as hard as it has been for our members, for midwives and MSWs and for students who've been working through the pandemic. But actually, the job of services to members, our services to members team is to be able to support members and to be out and about with them and to represent them and influence them. And of course, all of my team have had to do that from their homes for the last 18 months. They haven't been able to go into units. We haven't been able to visit But what we have done is we have really embraced the technology and managed to transfer almost everything onto team or onto Zoom or onto WhatsApp. So we've got far more branch Facebook pages now. We've got virtual training, virtual study days, virtual branch meetings. And and sometimes I think they have worked really, really well. And we've seen people at events that we haven't seen before. So people came to annual conference that had never never managed to get to a physical conference, but were able to join us online. So it's been a real challenge for the services to members team because our focus is on delivery to members, making sure that their rights are being upheld, making sure that we're providing representation. And what we've been doing in, over the last 18 months is trying to do that in a slightly different way. It's definitely one of the pros that's come out of this whole pandemic. I think not only for the RCM, but things going virtual. Like you said, it enables members who might not be able to jump on a train and travel a couple of hours to a conference to actually join live. And they're really getting, I guess, they're really getting something that they may not have been able to get before thanks to Zoom or a webinar. That's right. And I think the future is going to be what the academics call a blended approach, because I think there is something hugely important about the sense of community. And when you get a group of midwives and MSWs in a room together, the buzz is amazing. And I really do miss going out to units. I particularly miss the cake, of course. (laughs) Always serve us up great cake. However, I do think the fact that so many more people have been able to engage and, and, yeah, people who didn't get away, people who've got childcare responsibilities or caring responsibilities, people who work different shifts actually can come to annual conference, can, could come to the education conference. Our activist conference is going to be next month and that's going to be online as well. And I think our future has got to be something that draws the best of both of those. Absolutely. Now, looking, not looking quite ahead to the future, but looking at the current realities that are facing our members, midwives, maternity support workers and all maternity staff at the moment. We knew going into this pandemic that we had a shortage of 2000 midwives in England alone. But obviously the pandemic with people shielding and and getting COVID has really exacerbated the shortages, hasn't it? Oh, oh my goodness, it has, Gemma. I mean, We've been saying for years now that we are short of midwives and that the maternity services are understaffed. And we've been saying for years now that some services are going to get to a point of having their having their safety compromised. 
And I believe we're at that point. Every day I hear of another unit that is 30 or 40 or even 50 midwives short. And, And every day I hear of another unit that can't recruit a director of midwifery or has got massive gaps in its senior leadership team. And I hear about units where sickness absence is approaching 40%. And then I hear of midwives who are no longer prepared to work on bank shifts because they're burnt out. And and that's what I mean about saying, you know, we know just how tough it has been for our members over the last year. And we know that it is not getting any better just yet. We have written and set out very clearly where we think the red lines are in terms of what can be done in the short to medium term to try and alleviate this staffing crisis. So things like we're saying, let's make sure that all students who qualify this year are offered a full-time job. That will mean some trusts will have to increase their staffing funding. We're saying, let's make sure bank work is attractive by paying midwives properly particularly those at the at the senior grades, stop relying on goodwill and commitment. We're saying use our wonderful MSWs to their full extent and their full capacity. We've got, in all four countries, really strong frameworks for support workers. Now, we should be making sure that every service uses them. And of course, and you've covered it in podcasts before, pay for everyone is probably the single biggest change that could be made. And a 3% pay award does not demonstrate that midwives and MSWs are appreciated. The other thing we've been really vocal about is calling for a pause for all major service change, like the rollout of continuity of care schemes. Now, all of our members will know we need time for services to rest and reflect and recover from COVID. And we certainly need to address these staffing shortages before we can do the really ambitious plans around continuity of care that we would all really like to see if the situation was right. I think that's a really fair point, isn't it? Because you see continuity of care and carer recommended in lots of reports. And you know, just, just last week, I was writing a, a response to some nice guidelines that was recommending continuity of care. In an ideal world, it would be perfect, but there simply aren't enough midwives at the moment. And realistically, it's the government obviously may listen now because this is part of the Better Birth Plan for maternity services in England, continuity of carer. But of course, how can it be delivered when there aren't enough midwives? That's absolutely right. And I think that that, I guess, is our strongest message to all of our members is that we've got your back in this. Your local stewards and your regional and national officers will already be raising these issues with management and we'll continue to escalate your concerns and we'll continue to oppose service changes that are not feasible at the moment. This is not about disagreeing with the concept at all, but it is about disagreeing with the timing and the speed and the pace. And we'll continue to press your case at every level of the NHS. And I'm so pleased to be joined this morning by Rosemary Aitakai. Rosemary, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you, Gemma. How about yourself? Not so bad. Now, you're a consultant midwife specialising in midwife-led care. You're speaking um, at one of our key sessions at conference this year. But let's go back to how it all began. How did you become a midwife? I've always wanted to be a, a nurse. 
I remember uh, as a little girl, my friends would ask me, what would I want to be? And I would say, yes, I want to be a nurse. And they'd ask me, yeah, but what would you really like to be? There's no nursing. I'll still want to be a nurse. And as I grew older, this concept came into my mind that it would be lovely to be a British trained nurse. Now, I mean, growing up in Nigeria, I had no idea what that meant. But of course, we watched a lot of documentary and saw um, United Kingdom and England looking very... um, very fantastic with beautiful trees, lovely buildings. And I thought it'd be nice to go over there one day and and, and train to be a, a nurse. Of course, that didn't happen. But I had a fantastic uh, nursing degree. I trained as a nurse in Nigeria and I qualified in 2000. That for me was really an, a fantastic opportunity to undertake the nursing training in the environment that I did because it all my all my uh, learning, all my conversations with my with my lecturers and my fellow students prepared me for the journey I was to embark on, which has led me to where I am today. So growing up in Nigeria, of course, there's the issues with deprivation, with significant levels of poverty, and learning to do a lot with a little. So that has sort of informed me into becoming the professional that I am today. So I qualified as a nurse in 2000 and then worked in Nigeria briefly for uh, a couple of years before I came into the UK, finally <laughs> living my dream, if you like, or fulfilling my dream. Of course, coming into the UK and living, uh, living and working here, there was a lot of cultural changes, things that one needed to adapt to yeah. and understanding <laughs> uh, hierarchy wasn't so much of a priority compared to what it was in Nigeria. So yeah, it was a real culture shock. So I worked in critical care for about seven and a half years and I then went on to train as a midwife in 2008 and I qualified uh, as a midwife in 2010 full of excitement with so much passion and dedication really to the role of being a midwife and of of course a nurse because I've I've always kept my uh, registered nurse uh, part of my um, uh, registration as well as a nurse also being in critical care I felt more equipped to look after women who were experiencing complex pregnancies as well as also understanding the needs of women who have what we call low-risk pregnancy. So I was excited to go into the midwifery profession, got my first job where I wanted to work and of course fantastic team of midwives that I'd worked with in the community, on the birth centre, labour ward and of course in the antenatal part as well, being able to support women and their families and, and really providing the care that they want and listening to what matters to women. I then worked in a few London hospitals. I worked as a band six midwife. I then went on to work as a labor ward coordinator. (laughs) I thought the opportunity had a reason for me to grow, to develop and to utilize the skills that I'd gained and leading the team of midwives thing to offer in relation to midwifery and leadership. And I did that for about three years. And during that role, oh my God, it opened my eyes into understanding the value, the sheer importance of leadership and how it shapes our services and how it improves uh, the care we give to the women. So during that period of uh, being a labor coordinator, I um, started a, uh, a master's in, um, in clinical leadership at uh, Kingston University. And yes, it it was really an eye-opening program. And I would recommend um, training or developing oneself as part of doing 
in the clinical role as well. Uh, not only does it take you outside of the clinical environment, but it helps you to grow as a professional. It's on your pathway towards um, your career progression. And then in 2016, I saw an opportunity to further utilize my leadership uh, role. And I applied for the role of a um, clinical lead for maternity HDU and theaters. And I started that position in 2016. And I've also worked as a uh, interim labor ward matron as well. Uh, until recently, um, I uh, undertook or started a position as a consultant midwife for, le- for midwife-led care, which I think is so, so uh, crucial to the times that we're, we're in right now. And I think as a, as a consultant midwife, I, I think this is the time really that, we, if, if you like, we must stand firm for the midwifery profession. And at the same time, stand firm with our women as well to support them, to listen to them, to understand, to plan the care that they truly believe will empower them, would help them to continue their lives in the postnatal period, feeling uplifted, feeling empowered and feeling dignified. really pleased this morning to be joined by Keely Barrett, of course, first and foremost in MSW at East Lancashire Hospitals, also an RCM board member, in addition to being an MSW advocate, a health and safety person and a steward. Keely, how are you? How do you manage, first of all, to do all these roles so brilliantly? Thanks, Gemma. Yeah, it's certainly been a challenge of recent weeks, but, you know, I've got a great team around me, a great branch committee that support me in what I do, and uh, and great line managers, really, that's the key, because obviously these roles can take a considerable amount of time, so it's really important that you can have those open conversations with managers about what time commitment's required, really, but the benefits to them as well. Yeah, because activists are so influential to the RCM and for all our members, particularly at local level, because without our activists having those great relationships within their trusts and services, we're really at a loss, aren't we, as an organisation? Yeah, we, we certainly are. I mean, um, you know, local reps within the workplace are often key to being able to raise issues, particularly health and safety issues for health and safety reps attending Uh, committees is key really and you can raise member issues sometimes you can be doing the inspections and actually uncover issues yourself and you know so it's really important to have those people on that local level because health and safety is fundamental to everything that our our members do and if those parameters aren't in place you know it, it doesn't make for a safe workplace and during COVID you achieved something pretty big in terms of influencing at local level. You had the Health and Safety Committee reinstated at your trust. Is that right, Keely? We did, yeah. Uh, along with the help from uh, Leslie Wood, who was regional officer at the time for my area. Um, so during COVID, the trust had made the decision, obviously, to stand down all meetings for a time. Uh, and, and as a staff side and as a health and safety rep myself, we accepted that initially because COVID was very new. We were dealing with this pandemic that we knew nothing about this uh, this condition. So we accepted that for a time. But as time went on, we kind of incorporated the health and safety meeting into some of the meeting that they were having. But it was a meeting that trade unions weren't invited to. And we felt that wasn't right at all because we we are an essential part of that committee. So along with Leslie Wood, we uh, worked together to speak to the trust, uh, speak to the relevant people 
uh, even right up to board level to the directors to work to get that meeting reinstated. I mean, that's just fantastic too, because we know that maternity services struggle to get the attention of their boards and those at senior level, you know, within trusts. And that's a big issue and it affects lots of practice. But this was a real win at local level and a real win for our members at East Lancashire. Absolutely. Like I say, I've always been passionate about health and safety and I do think it's key to everything we do. It's key to members' health and well-being. If we are not healthy, we can't care for the women properly. I just feel it's absolutely vital that staff side and and trade union reps uh, have a say, you know, in every aspect of health and safety, from the health and safety committee to what's happening locally in departments, to risk assessing. It's just key to everything, really. And there you have it. You've been listening to the RCM's 2021 podcast highlights. A huge thank you to all my guests from across this year. If you'd like to share your story and be part of our 2022 series, I would love to hear from you. You can shine a light on your own work or your team's work. Please drop an email with your contact details to media at rcm.org.uk. That's media at rcm.org.uk. In January, we'll be kicking things off on a very digital note for 2022. I'll be chatting to digital midwives from around the UK and the RCM's digital midwife advisor who will join me for more on what the RCM is doing to support members with the shift to digital. Also, you can hear more in our January episode about what the RCM's top priorities are for 2022. Until then, have a great Christmas, take care, and I'll leave you with a very special message from RCM's Chief Executive and General Secretary, Jill Walton. Jill Walton, RCM's Chief Executive and General Secretary. What what a year it's been for midwives, maternity support workers and maternity services, and it's not over yet, Jill. No, it isn't. And, and, you know, as you know, Gemma, we've been very worried about how fragile um, maternity services and our members are, not just because they're working during a pandemic, but because there's been long standing underfunding of maternity services. And so I think this year we've come to recognise that even more in this the last six months have been particularly hard. But as ever, I, I still can't I mean, our members are amazing, aren't they, Gemma? They absolutely step up and carry on delivering great care to women. And we know that because women always report how great their midwives and maternity teams have been. So despite all the things that are going on, I still hear some really good news stories about maternity. I think just a quick reflection of last year, I think the RCM's had lots of attention, some some positive and some 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 yeah. negative, <laughs> particularly about our messaging around the vaccine. That was quite shocking that, that people thought to attack us for some very um, sensible, I think, public health messaging. So it's been an interesting year as well. And we've learned loads. And, you know, hopefully we'll feed that into what we do next year to, to keep going as we all must. <laughs> In the face of adversity, midwives and maternity sport workers keep delivering the best care they can. Um, and it's not always easy. And all we can do is hope. I mean, that is probably the only thing we've got, that, that hope and the hard work that things are going to get better. And with the science behind the vaccines and everybody taking sensible precaution, let's all hope that next year is going to be better. Absolutely. Here's to 2022. 
it's Christmas. I, I, I feel guilty saying it's Christmas because there's so much going on with Omicron and everything, but it's Christmas and lots of people will be looking forward to some downtime after working hard all year. But there'll be lots of midwives right across the UK that will be keeping maternity services, services running. Uh, absolutely. It's a 24-7 service. Babies don't stop coming. Let's stop coming, that's yeah. for sure. But having worked many Christmases myself, as a, you know, when I worked for the NHS, midwives can still have fun. They love chocolate. They love cake. And actually, lots of people donate food. And the, the, the staff restrooms are usually adorned with all of that food that people can have over the Christmas period. And actually, women and families really appreciate the staff over the Christmas period. And that's that's part of the pleasure of working over Christmas. It's hard because you're away from friends and family, but it sort of goes with the job and everybody tries to make it the best they can if you have to work over the Christmas period. And and most people will. They will have to. It's about holding on to those joyful things, isn't it, in the face of all this adversity, because babies still will be born. Midwives will still be looking after them. And when you're in a room or in a home with 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 parents having babies, that's the joy, isn't it? That's why we do it. That absolutely is why we do it. And we have to keep remembering that. But, you know, the most important thing is our members. It's, you know, I keep saying the most important thing is you when I talk to, to, to members and how important it is to really make yourself take time out for yourself. And when you read about resilience, you know, resilient people don't just work harder and smarter. The resilient people are the ones that look after themselves so they can keep going for longer without harm. And I think that's really important. Be resilient means putting yourself first. And our, you know, the things that we do in the RCM, like the Caring For You campaign, are about that. Caring for you, caring for your, 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 your colleagues, the people you work with. And for the RCM, that has to be a really important thing that we do next year. Right on the top of the Christmas present list is... <laughs> caring for yourself. (laughs) That's a really important message. Jill, thank you so much. I know in January, you're going to come and speak to me again, and we're going to talk about the RCM's key priorities for 2022. But now it's just a happy Christmas to our RCM members. Yeah, happy Christmas. Enjoy the festive season. And I will speak to you in the new year. Goodbye.